Cape Talk. WhatsApp 072 567 It is the next half an hour for you is uh, The Naked Scientist. And, of course, we chat to Chris Smith. Uh, very good morning to you, Chris, and welcome to the show again. Good morning. How are you doing? I am all good. Chris, somebody uh, comes off the WhatsApp line, our first question, and it says, please, could you uh, ask Dr. Chris, what are those lines before the robots and how do they work to make them change? I think it's the cables in the asphalt. And uh, I think uh, the technical term there is they're called loops. Yeah, that's right. So uh, in order to work out whether there's a vehicle present, because some traffic lights are, believe it or not, intelligent, you put a system into the ground which can detect whether or not there's a vehicle of a certain size over that patch of ground. And, and they then signal to the traffic lights. There's a range of ways of doing this. Sometimes they are uh, inductive loops that can, can actually detect that there's, there's something big above the ground, big and metallic, and they do that by detecting the presence of a large metal object. There's various ways of doing that. Others, it can be a, a pressure sensor, so they detect weight. Sometimes, actually, there's nothing in the ground. There's something above the ground. The traffic lights actually have a, a physical sensor that's looking at the road and can detect how, uh, how the traffic is flowing or even if there's any traffic there. So there's a range of ways of doing this. And, and those loops are not necessarily only used for traffic lights. They are used on the highways to uh, monitor the volumes of, of traffic and the, monitor, the volumes of, of cars going in a particular direction and at what speed they're traveling. Yes, because you can use them as a traffic counter because you can detect when something goes past and you know roughly um, how, how big an, an average car is and so you can look for the signal going on, off, on, off and every time it goes on and off that means a car or a vehicle has passed overhead and you can call that one vehicle movement. So you can use them for measuring flow and, and volume of traffic as well. That's absolutely right. Mm. And, and that data would be used for what? Well, for a range of reasons. Um, one is, you know, how busy are the roads? Because when we see traffic reports, it's changed a bit these days. Because in the old days, a lot of these traffic reports on how busy the roads were, were, were people manually looking at the roads and then reporting in or people using cameras to do that. But nowadays, it's really changed because, of course, most people have smartphones. And those smartphones are being monitored by various applications running on the phones. Also, the, the, the phone operators know where the phone is. You can use that to work out how fast someone's travelling because there are various bits of uh, technology in the phone that, that work out where you are and how quickly you're moving. And you can therefore work out when someone's in a car and you can therefore work out how quickly the car's moving and therefore what the traffic flow is doing. So nowadays we're not so reliant on these sorts of technologies to do this because we can use the fact that, that there is huge imparallel gathering of data from people who are actually on the road for real and that's all fed back and integrated to give us a picture of, of what roads and traffic flow are doing. Chatting to the Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith, this morning. Um, uh, Ria out in Hard Bay has a question for you, Chris. Hi, Chris. Good morning. Uh, I would like to know what are the dangers of a G5 tower near residential areas? We've had this discussion yesterday, and I'd like you to sort of uh, just elaborate on this particular discussion because I think we had quite a heated debate. So uh, what is the effect of a 5G uh, on residents in an area? Well, first of all, what's 5G? Well, 5G is the latest generation of telecommunications devices. 
and the towers produce microwaves. Those microwaves are then detected by people's handsets, and the handsets send microwaves back to the tower. So there's a two-way conversation between your phone or your mobile device and the tower, and that's how you have conversations or browse the internet. The microwaves which are being used are not judged to be sufficiently powerful or energetic to cause any damage to a living thing. And that's because the intensity of the microwaves isn't that high. But more importantly, microwaves themselves, the physical radiation, is not powerful enough to rearrange chemical bonds. And if it can't rearrange chemical bonds, then it can't damage your DNA. So we're not worried that this is an ionising radiation and capable of damaging our tissues. So as far as we know, and based on the tests that have been done, the radiation that's emitted and used by these devices and other domestic devices which which use similar regimes of radiation are not judged to be health harmful. At the moment, data are being gathered all over the world in an enormous way because there are billions of phones and devices all over the world that are using 5G and, and other regimes for communications and people are looking at the health outcomes to see if there's any trajectory of change because there's something called the Bradford Hill criteria of causation. And for something to cause something, you have to see a number of things being fulfilled. And one of them is what's called a dose-dependent relationship. In other words, the more of something that causes whatever it is you're measuring, the more of those cases you should see. We've seen an exponential uptake in the use of mobile phones and mobile devices. Therefore, if there's a health link to that, we should see a step change in the rates of various diseases or disorders. We haven't seen that yet. That doesn't mean there isn't one because evidence of absence needs to come rather than just say there's absence of evidence. But it may be that there's a time lag. So people are continuing to look for any kind of health associations. They haven't found any. So at the moment we're reassured that there are no health ill effects from using these technologies. That doesn't mean that we uh, assume everything is fine. We have to carry on looking and make sure everything is safe. But based on the science we have and the knowledge we have at the moment, there is no evidence of harm. Is there any kind of research being done in South Africa about this? Because we had numerous calls yesterday where a gentleman says he measured microwatts in a lakeside area, for instance, uh, and it was about 100 um, um, microwatts, and then he moved to a di- he is actually moving to a different area because it has actually physically affected him. Well, the thing is that he can't prove that it is that that has affected him. The microwave radiation that you get in one area may indeed be higher than the microwave radiation you get in another, but maybe there's more traffic noise, maybe there's more uh, other kinds of disturbance, maybe the humidity and the temperature are different there. These things all affect us. It might be that, that some other factor is actually causing him to be affected in the way he describes, and it's just spurious that there's also an association with the uh, 5G signals. Until actually we have more data on this, it's impossible to know. But yes, telecommunications companies all over the world are effectively participating in a massive experiment to measure this. Also worth bearing in mind, I don't know if the gentleman you're referring to owns a mobile phone handset, but the exposure you're going to get from radiation from a a mast is a fraction of the exposure you're going to get when you hold your phone up to your head and make a call, because that's literally beaming high-intensity rays straight into your brain whereas the intensity you're going to get from a remote mass somewhere is tiny no different really than what you're getting from television signals coming through you so um i think it's it's easy to jump to these conclusions it's very important that we approach this scientifically there we go 
putting that into a nutshell and giving us a scientific explanation as to exactly what 5G is in the effect of 5G. And I think the key thing here is to be able to base anything that you, that, that you are um, you know, mentioning in any kind of way uh, to base that on, on scientific research and uh, the research, is, as a matter of fact, uh, in terms of 5G and any other kind of cell phone towers is actually, um, it, it's, it's quite in its early stages at the moment. Uh, chatting this morning to uh, the Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith, and we are taking your calls and your voice notes on 0214460567 and your voice notes on 0725671567. Here's our first voice note, Chris. Morning, Zane. This is for the Naked Scientist. How does yawning come about? What causes one to yawn? Thanks. And if mm. I yawn, why does somebody else yawn at the same time? Is, is yep. it because they're watching me yawn? Now, are yawns infectious? The... Answer to this one is that we don't know for sure, but we have some theories. One theory is that yawning evolved as a brain cooling mechanism, and if you cool the brain, you make the brain more alert. What's the evidence for this? Well, the only study I'm aware of that I think is very reliable was a study done by Gordon Gallup in New York a few years back, and they took a group of students. And they didn't tell the students that they were going to be taking part in a yawning study. They just asked them to watch some films. But what the students didn't know is that the films in various places included footage of people yawning. And what the researchers were doing was counting sympathetic yawns in the students. You see someone yawn, you feel the urge to yawn yourself. So they watched the films and they counted how many times the kids yawned in sync with what they were watching. Let's let's say it was 50%. Then what they did was to say to them, OK, we want you to do the experiment uh, again, watch some more movies, but this time we want you to hold this cold compress onto your head. Or we want you to breathe exclusively through your mouth, not through your nose. Because when you can't breathe through your nose, you drive up brain temperature. And what they found when they did this was with the cold compress on the head, the amount of sympathetic yawning dropped to near zero. Whereas when they asked them to breathe through their mouth exclusively, preventing the cool air from cooling the blood vessels in the head and therefore indirectly cooling the brain, the amount of yawning sympathetically increased significantly. And so what this tells us is that we yawn probably when other people yawn, probably as an evolutionary thing that if they're falling asleep and they're tired, we might be in danger of being sleepy and falling asleep as well. So we catch a yawn to make ourselves alert because if you think back to sort of caveman, cavewoman days, people sitting around a campfire might be uh, attacked by uh, a vicious animal or something. If, you, if you've got people there and you all need to stay alert and one person yawns, by catching a yawn, you increase the overall alertness of the group and therefore someone's going to spot the approaching predator that might make you its dinner. So that's, that's part of it. The other part of it is, in terms of the cooling thing, the reason that experiment worked is by holding the cold compress on the head, if you depress um, the, the temperature of the head, you reduce brain temperature and a cooler brain is a more alert brain because we know that sleep deprivation and tiredness on average drives up brain temperature which is probably why they saw the effect they did. And this appears to, to be the case across the animal kingdom in terms of, of, of more complex animals like us. They yawn. They probably all yawn for a similar sort of reason. It's an alertness thing. 
Thanks very much for that clarification on why do people yawn. And uh, Ian out in Bloberg has a question for Dr. Chris Smith. Morning, Ian. Morning, guys. Um, now, my question <clears throat> is, uh, I, was, I was watching a program on megalithic structures and um, the various structures around the globe and their seemingly um, correlation with ancient civilizations and the way they tapped into an energy of sorts um, as an explanation as to how these structures were built in the first place. Um, massive granite rocks cut with precision, etc. I wonder if, um, if you could shed some light on this. We don't know why people 5,000 years ago did some of the extraordinary things that they did. We know that people were very heavily influenced by what they could see. And one of the things they could see were very visible presences like the sun and the moon and the stars. And because these things were a constant, the sun predictably came up and went down in the same way every day. The moon had this, had a cycle that people could monitor and record. Stars, some of them appeared to be in exactly the same places all the time. Other stars, which we now realise are planets, moved around, but they moved around in predictable ways. And so as people spotted these patterns and then tied them to things like the changing seasons, people lived and died by uh, making sure they had enough food to eat, that they prepared for winter when it was going to come if they lived in some climes. And as a result, people were very in tune with their environment. And therefore, it made sense for them to build things which would reflect that environmental impact on their lives and build them in a way that was perhaps sympathetic to those particular features. But I don't think there's any evidence that people tuned into any kind of ancient energy or anything like that. Uh, this is sort of a convenient theory that's been retrofitted onto some of these structures and some of these things that people practiced in those days and, and belief systems. But the, the reality is that it was sheer blood, sweat and tears that built an enormous amount of these structures. And people must have believed in what they were doing to a great degree to go to the extraordinary, extraordinary lengths that they did. And, and that's why we actually are, are the beneficiaries of these wonderful structures and this wonderful rich history today. But there, there's not really any evidence that uh, people used anything other than their own intuition and curiosity about their environment that informed what they built and where they built it. And I think we can sort of just amaze ourselves at the scientific and mathematical precision with which a, a number of these um, uh, structures have been built. That's the answer for Ian Altin Blogberg. Anthony, your question for Dr. Chris this morning. Uh, good morning, Doctor. Uh, I'd just like to find out, please, uh, what is the cause of tinnitus and is there a cure for it? Thank Hi, you very Anthony. much. Well, first of all, what's tinnitus? Tinnitus is a ringing noise in the ears and it takes different forms. Some people describe a high-pitched sound, some people describe a rumbling noise, some people describe much more complicated sounds. But these are intrusive, unwanted sounds that are not heard by other people. They're coming from within your own hearing system. We think that, and this is almost exclusively occurring in people with hearing damage, that this is caused by damage to the hearing system that leads to a reconfiguration in the way that the brain listens to signals coming from the ear and that in turn this, this turns into these abnormal sounds. One uh, theory is that it's a bit like phantom limb pain. When a person has an amputation or, or loses a body part, say your arm or your leg or something, it's not uncommon for the victim to say afterwards that they can still feel as though the missing body part is there and it's very painful. 
And we think that happens because the lack of feedback coming from the missing body part leads the brain to amplify the signals that are not there, which are in the circuitry, to try to tune in or hear the uh, missing signals. And in the process, spurious noise is amplified, which translates into a sensation of pain. This is one theory of, of why we get phantom limb pain. And if you then extrapolate that to what's going on with the hearing system, if you damage the cochlea, which is the part of the inner ear where sound waves are turned into brain waves, then there will be a gap in the sound information that's being sent on into the brain for decoding. And if the brain sees that information is missing, the brain interprets this as I'm not listening hard enough, so the brain turns up the amplitude or the amplification of the signals coming through. And in the same way that if you tune into a radio station and the signal isn't very good, you turn the volume up, you do hear the speaker a bit better, but you also hear all that hiss and whooshing in the background, it's thought to be the same. And as the brain amplifies the weaker signal coming from the damaged ear to hear better, a lot of the spurious noise in the neurological circuits also gets pushed up and that's what becomes tinnitus. Unfortunately, there's no easy way to get rid of tinnitus, but some things can help. And one of those things is to encourage people not to focus on it. Because one of the things about the way the brain and the attention system works is that we pay attention to what we choose to focus on and we increase the emphasis that has on our consciousness. So if you focus on the tinnitus, then you can exclude all the other distracting noises and make the tinnitus centre stage and it becomes even more intrusive. If you can find other ways to distract you from the tinnitus or even mask the tinnitus by having small amounts of, of low amplitude sounds, then you can ignore the tinnitus and when you ignore it, it tends to become less intrusive and less troublesome. But at the moment, there's no known cure for tinnitus. The best cure is prevention. The best prevention is to protect your hearing. Don't be exposed to very loud sounds. Don't listen to music on headphones in your ears yeah. for prolonged periods of time at high volume because this does translate into damage over time and, and increases your risk of getting tinnitus. And if you have a wife that has got tinnitus, then tell her not to ignore you, just to ignore those sounds. Chatting to our naked scientist this morning, Dr. Chris Smith. Uh, doctor, uh, our next call is from Mel out in Rondebosch. Mel, a very good morning to you and your question for the naked scientist. Good morning, Dr. Chris. I was watching the birds in my garden. I've got a few bird feeders in the garden over the last few days. And when it's raining, I see that I've got very few furry visitors that come in. So I was wondering, what happens with birds when there is continuous rain over an extended period of time? Um, can they feed? Can they fly in the rain? And what do they do? Thank you. Yeah, hi, Mel. Um, the answer is that birds are warm-blooded. They have a really high metabolic rate. The demands of flight mean that uh, their body is, is having to produce and, and process calories at a ferocious rate. And therefore, birds have to eat. If they don't eat and they don't eat regularly, they won't be able to sustain that high metabolic rate. So they have to fly because uh, it's unsafe to, to go hunting and trying to find things unless you do fly at least some distance and you're always on your guard in case a cat comes along or something and tries to eat you so birds definitely can fly they can fly in the rain but obviously it's more dangerous for them and it makes flight much more demanding because although birds add to their feathers various oils that encourage water to come off because birds are very very light and they, they need to be by necessity because otherwise they won't be able to fly but feathers also trap 
uh, air below the feather so that the bird can push the air down to create lift. But if, if they've got a lot of water on the feather, this can impair the movements of their feathers. So they oil up their feathers in order to push off water and make the water run off very quickly. So birds do have their own inbuilt, almost like Teflon, to keep themselves as dry as they can be. But at the same time, it's not without risk flying in, in bad weather, flying in heavy rain, because it does increase the metabolic demand. And it also increases the chance that uh, because you can't get off the ground as quick, if you're on the ground pecking around for, for seeds and foods and things, that, that something's going to come after you and you won't be able to get away quickly enough because you're not flying as, as fast as you could do normally. So you become lunch. So it's a risk for birds. And where possible, they will shelter and try to avoid going out as much as perhaps they, they would have done until the rainstorm passes. But born out of necessity, they sometimes have to go and, uh, and find food, especially if they're rearing young. And, and so it's a, it's a risk they have to take. Chatting to the Naked Scientist this morning, Dr. Chris Smith, uh, 021-446-0567 for your questions. And on the WhatsApp line on 0725671567. Philly Artin Rondebosch is our next caller, Doctor. Good morning. Um, as regards the yawning, I live alone, so I can't be uh, affected by somebody else yawning. But I can yawn 20 times on the trot. So that's my first question. And the second one is that yesterday, a doctor phoned in about the G5 and said that he'd noticed problems with patients who were near G5 or had it in their homes or something. And he had really sort of dire um, uh, opinions about it. So those are the two questions, please. Thanks very much, Philly. Um, Chris? Well, first of all, on the, on the yawning front, you know, everyone's an individual, and so therefore it's not uncommon for people to have multiple successions of yawns. And when you do feel sleepy, when you do feel tired, if you have had uh, poor sleep the night before, you will yawn more because the more you yawn, the more you cool your brain, and this is a reflex to try to increase alertness not impossible for that to happen with respect to 5g masks um with, with without repeating what we said at the beginning of the program at the moment people are watching this very carefully and collecting evidence and as that evidence body grows then we'll get a clearer picture of whether or not there are health risks but one must be very cautious about cause and effect now it might be that if a person has a mast on their house or very near their house. Perhaps their house is in an area where, shall we say, it's in a less salubrious area or a lower socioeconomic area than in someone who lives in a palace and doesn't have a mast on their house. Now, the, I argue that the two people in those two different environments are probably going to have quite different health outcomes and live very different lives. And that's nothing to do with the mast per se, it's to do with the area where the mast is. People who live in palaces generally don't tolerate having ma masts right next to their houses and don't have to put up with them and probably earn more and probably have a higher standard of living than someone who is forced to live in an area where the housing stock is poor, there's lots of traffic noise, there's lots of pollution, the other facilities may not be as good, crime may be higher, stress may be higher, and all these factors have a health impact, which may be nothing to do with what's coming out of the mast. It's purely the fact that the mast has been put there 
because there are lots of people who live there in high population density and that's a risk factor for, for bad health as well and it's not what's coming out of the mast it is the environment in which the mast has been sighted so one must be very careful about jumping to conclusions in this way and that's why gathering the data and following up and making sure as we gain this and gather this data that there are no impacts on health and that's what's being done at the moment. So it's, it's certainly an open question at the moment, but there is no evidence to support there being any health ill effects at the moment. That's not to say we shouldn't go looking, though. Yeah, I think it's still, it's still um, open for discussion. And I think yesterday we provided that platform for people to actually discuss this. Uh, chatting this morning to the Naked Scientist, uh, Dr. Chris Smith and uh, Lulaine from Wellington has a question. Uh, Lulaine, your question for the Naked Scientist this morning? Hi, uh, Dr. Smith. I want to know what causes tennis elbow and why do they call it tennis elbow and what can, be poss- can, what can possibly be done about it? Yeah, I, I gave I, myself I this. at the moment and it, it's really sore. My arm is really paining mm. and I'm running and it just gets worse and worse now. <laughs> well, I did it to myself. I dug a trench. I, I built a radio studio and as you do and I dug a big trench to put all the cables in which was 100 metres long and I thought I'll do that it can't be that hard to dig a a trench that's about um, uh, 6 inches 8 inches wide and and about a metre deep and and it took me a week to do it and by the end of it I knew that physical work and being a a labourer is definitely not for me because I'd given myself some kind of tennis elbow the what's actually going on is where the muscles insert into the bone into a layer called the periosteum the muscle is connected into that layer through a tendon which is fibrous tissue and you can actually when you repeatedly shock the arm because the muscle is working you can actually cause the insertion into the surface of the bone to become painful and inflamed and that's one cause of pain around the elbow and sports people get this when they're doing tennis or golf for example because certain movements if they're repeated and done a lot can apply strain or more load onto those particular points around the joint and this can cause the the flare-up and the symptoms there are other reasons why you might get a painful elbow joint it's not just necessarily tennis elbow or golfer's elbow there may be other reasons why a joint becomes painful and sore so you shouldn't just say it's definitely tennis elbow or something like that there there could be arthritis or other damage uh, inflammation in the joint but when you get this kind of repetitive injury it gets called tennis elbow because it's and most common in that particular group of people who do those repeated movements but anything like me digging my trench can cause damage or temporary pain around a joint and that may be what you've done um, have you have you had this as a short-term thing or is this something which has been going on for a very long time three weeks three weeks yeah i mean that's a yeah, short-term thing and and mm. therefore th- this is probably what i'm saying it's probably repeated injury around the joint and if you rest the joint stop doing whatever makes this hurt and get worse try simple remedies such as anti-inflammatories do be careful about which ones you use so that you don't give yourself a sore tummy and if it doesn't get better in a week or so with resting it up and rubbing on anti-inflammatories and taking anti-inflammatories and pain relief you should go and see someone just to just to make sure nothing else is going on in the joint that might need treating Thanks very much. That is our feature with Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, every Friday morning, 10 o'clock time for the latest Eyewitness News.